0: Our first reading is from Revelations, chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, O Holy One, who are and were, for you have judged these things. Because they shed the blood of the saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch them with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God, who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores they, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Amen. Our second reading is from Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, from the throne saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning rumblings, pearls of thunder and a violent earthquake such as had not occurred since people were on the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the city of the nations fell. God remembered great (coughs) Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. Amen.
1: This is the seventh of the series of sermons that uh, I'm giving on the book of Revelation as we go through this year. I'm not going to be recapping my methodology in the way I'm suggesting we read Revelation in today's sermon. If you want to know more about that, go back to number one, where I talk about that in a lot more detail. Today, I want to focus on what Revelation might be able to say to us about uh, how heaven might invite us to see the environment that we live in. Did you see the news this week? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report for the United Nations has found that ecosystems around the world have never before been under such threat and that the climate crisis is damaging the ability of land to sustain humanity. Some of the world's top scientists collaborated in that report and they warn that cascading risks are becoming increasingly severe as global temperature rises with droughts, soil erosion and wildfires increasing, crop (coughs) yields decreasing and thawing permafrost. Meanwhile, I had a long conversation with someone yesterday who directed me approvingly to Piers Corbyn's assertion that man-made climate change does not exist and that, rather, stories of climate change are the product of journalists rather than scientists. Who are you going to believe? To play my hand early, I tend fairly strongly towards believing the scientists and the IPCC. But this sermon finds its origin in uh, some years ago now Uh, when I started to to think seriously and engage personally with this whole area of climate change, global warming and the attendant uh, threat of environmental devastation. And I surprised myself because for quite some time I found myself obsessed, maybe even depressed, as I sought to get my mind around the emotions I was experiencing whenever I contemplated this troubling reality. Sleepless nights and panic attacks ensued, and I had to ask myself why it should be that I was responding with what, uh, certainly at that time, was for me an uncharacteristic intensity. Initially, I wondered if it was uh, as simple as kind of encroaching middle age and a fear of uh, you know, impending mortality. But then I concluded this was not the case because I'd spent large portions of my life riding high-performance motorbikes, and anybody who does that can't be entirely risk-averse. Neither, I think, was it a fear of the end of the world. I'm old enough to have grown up in the shadow of the Cold War. and. I think at a fairly early age, I was somewhat adjusted to the possibility that it might just all end. In time, I had a moment of what one might call revelation. I realized that I had fallen in love with Babylon. And that, like the merchants and seafarers of Revelation chapter 18, I was grieving the loss of my beloved empire. Listen to Revelation 18. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with Babylon will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo any more. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city, clothed in fine linen, in purple, in scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in one hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafarers and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And I thought, you know, I'm mourning the ending of Babylon. All of the comforts and luxuries that this environmentally unsustainable lifestyle gives me as under threat. My ability to fly, to go on holiday, to drive my car. All of this stuff that sustains my lifestyle, to import my clothes, all under threat. Very selfish insight, I think, but quite powerful. Well, anyway, to return to the book of Revelation and see what that might do for us on this, um, there are quite a few scenes of environmental destruction found in the book of Revelation. Uh, Fifi read us the bowl plagues, as they're known, from chapter 16, but they're kind of, it's a bit repetitious. You get similar things taking place throughout the book. They form part of a broader picture of... Uh, what the author is trying to do, which is to represent divine judgment on evil. And the various images of judgment, which the author utilizes, serve a double purpose. On the one hand, they demonstrate that evil in all its forms will not be allowed to continue into eternity. And on the other hand, they serve as warnings intended to provoke repentance on the part of the nations of the earth. Evil will not be allowed to continue into eternity and the nations need to hear that and repent of their collusion with evil. So the images of final judgment that the book of Revelation contains in effect offer John's readers something of an assurance. That, however powerful the forces seem to be that are opposing their faithful witness, the satanic systems of the earth will one day be called to account for their opposition to God's inbreaking kingdom. However, it's in these images of warning judgment that John depicts in some detail the desolation of the created order, which includes humanity. Environmental damage and human suffering are presented in the book of Revelation as inseparable partners, as we are discovering in our world today. In the sequences of seals and trumpets and bowls, John depicts scenes of environmental devastation with increasing intensity. So the opening of the sixth seal in the reading we had just now triggers the shaking of the entire cosmos with a great earthquake. Then we get the darkening of the sun and the moon and stars falling to the earth and the sky being rolled away and every mountain and island being displaced. Then the sounding of the trumpets leads to the burning away of a third of the earth the trees and all green grass, the death of a third of all sea creatures, the poisoning of the Earth's waters, the darkening of a third of the sun, the moon and the stars. And then the pouring out of the bolts triggers the death of every living thing in the sea, the poisoning of all waters, burning from an intensified sun and a time of darkness. You can see how these images sort of pile up upon each other of environmental destruction. And what we find is that as the environment is destroyed within the world of the vision, so it's interspersed with scenes of judgment on humanity. So the entire created order, nature and humans who dwell upon the earth, is depicted as suffering the effects of humanity's rejection of God. This is all the result of human sin. And John's intent in constructing these catastrophic, apocalyptic images of warning judgment, encompassing the whole of creation in their scope, is to try and give those living in his churches an alternative perspective on their earthly situation. You see, from the perspective of those living in the seven cities of Asia Minor, to whom John was writing, which Liz and I visited recently, The unbridled expansion of the Greco-Roman cultural, economic, and military empire was just amazing. I mean, what a wonderful time to have been alive. That point in first century, nobody had ever had it so good up until that moment. However, when viewed through John's visionary lens, this imperial machine that sustains these lifestyles of luxury is seen instead as a corrupting prostitute or a violent beast, demeaning and destroying all those who come into judgment with it. Sorry, all those who come into contact with it. And then the series of judgments on the earth that John described represent the inevitable end result of the human obsession with empire. It's like John's had this moment of massive revelation, and I use that word advisedly here, that if humans turn their back on living faithfully before God and harmoniously with creation, they set in place and build structures of empire that dominate creation, ultimately destroy creation, and in turn inflict suffering upon humanity in the form of either environmental catastrophe or warfare. So whether it's the death of a third of humankind through war, as it is in Revelation chapter 9, or environmental devastation on a global scale, these are all seen to be the direct consequences of human imperial aspiration. John is being highly subversive here. He is portraying empire, which in his day was the Roman Empire, as a violent and destructive system. And we might want to hear echoes of that in our world and reflect on where the empires are in our world that sustain our beautiful, wonderful lives. We've never had it so good, have we? Antibiotics, analgesics, the NHS, it's brilliant for now, John provides a powerful critique of all imperial systems which seek to centralize wealth and privilege for the privileged few at the expense of exploitation at the margins, whether that is exploitation of exploited humans or exploitation of the created order. Uh, Just as a slight aside, the Romans knew all about intensive farming Uh, They had a system of farming known as Latifundia farming, and North Africa was farmed extensively in these Latifundia, where six landowners owned the whole of North Africa, and they required their tenant farmers to put their uh, fields over to the production of luxury goods like olives uh, that could be imported to sustain the luxurious life in Italy and Asia Minor and those sorts of areas, which meant that those farmers were not able to grow crops to feed their own families. It's frighteningly contemporary. And John sees that, and he calls it out for what it is. And so we end up with a call to repentance. Simply portraying the effects of empire through images of suffering and destruction is not sufficient for John. He also offers a theological commentary on the globally catastrophic result of empire, lamenting that those who have experienced the judgments still do not repent. It's like he's looking at the earth and he's saying, you know, even when it is going wrong and even when you are seeing people dying as a result of exploitation, you're still not changing your ways. And within John's scheme in Revelation, the judgments that he describes, and hear this very clearly, they are not personally targeted punishments aimed at those who have denied the lordship of Christ. They are not God punishing the earth for its opposition to the kingdom of Christ. What he is describing is warnings to the nations of the effects of their ongoing investment in empire. He's describing the effects of their sinful idolatry in the hope that the nations of the earth will repent and turn from their exploitative and destructive practices. And the tragedy of John's presentation is that within it the nations remain unrepentant in the face of these warning judgments he portrays the imperial aspirations of the nations as so all-pervasive that even when faced with increasing levels of human and environmental catastrophe, they still remain committed to the exploitative practices of empire. I can't imagine people choosing a, a destructive path and sticking with it come hell or high water, can you? In this way, the kings, merchants, and seafarers are heard mourning the destruction of Babylon because they have so invested themselves in the economic systems of empire that they are unable to comprehend its ending as anything other than a disaster, which is contrasted to the response John expects of those who have entered with him into his visionary world to gain heaven's perspective on empire. He invites his readers... To rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. But the nations fail to heed the warnings. John offers a fairly bleak assessment of the future, particularly the future of the empire in which people are investing themselves. He portrays empire as an ultimately self-destructive system, which begets violence and suffering and environmental catastrophe. And against this background, John offers his theological assertion that systems of oppression and destruction must themselves ultimately face judgment. And this is something which he then vividly depicts in the vision of the destruction of the great whore and the great city in chapters 17 and 18. Interesting quote from my friend Ian Boxall here. He puts it very well. He says, evil and injustice bear within themselves the seeds of their own destruction. And ultimately the whole edifice will come tumbling down. However strong empire might appear, however brilliant it might appear, if it is exploitative and destructive, it's already planted within itself the seeds of its own destruction." So, one could be for thinking at this point that from an environmental perspective all is lost. After all, if John knows deep in his heart that despite the call to repentance, the nations will remain unrepentant, even in the face of increasingly severe and catastrophic results of their actions, surely the end result will be the breakdown of the entire created order. This is where I could descend back into my panic. However, John does not leave his audience with a scenario of ecological despair. From John's perspective, God has not yet written off creation, as irredeemably tainted by human sin and destined for destruction. There are Christian theologies around. We were talking about this just beforehand in the room out the back as we were praying There are theologies around which say it does not matter if creation goes to hell because God will just make a new one and that will be the new heavens and the new earth. You don't get that from the book of Revelation. The destruction of the destructive systems might be bad news for those who have invested heavily in them, but Revelation invites its readers to realize that this is good news for the rest of creation. The judgments against the environments which John describes are not total, and it is ultimately Babylon, the satanic empire, which is destroyed, not the earth. In this way, the results of imperial ecological devastation are seen to be limited rather than limitless. So the four angels who have the power to damage the earth and the sea in chapter 7 are restrained from harming the sea and the trees. At the sounding of the trumpets, it is a third of the earth which is destroyed. Two-thirds are not destroyed. The locusts from the bottomless pit in chapter 9 are told not to damage the grass or any green growth or any tree, and they're locusts. The warning judgments that John gives of environmental destruction are severe but restricted. And rather than depicting a downward spiral resulting in the end of the world, John is rather presenting the effects of human imperial ecological violence as warnings to be heard alongside his repeated call for repentance. And I think John's scheme finds clear echoes in the contemporary prophetic call for imperial environmental repentance. Sir Nicholas Stern says... There is still time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change if we act now. I think this is a direct echo of what John's doing in the book of Revelation. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent of your compulsion and addiction to empire. So is there an end to environmental exploitation? This hope which John presents is not restricted to a kind of mere divine limitation of the extent of environmental damage, it, it's not sufficient to go, well, maybe God will just rain everything in and it'll be okay. Rather, John points to divine judgment on the very systems which oppress and destroy creation. Following the seventh trumpet, the 24 elders, which is one of John's images for the church, Seeing that the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. The destruction of Babylon represents for John the final and fitting judgment on empire. Those systems which have placed themselves in opposition to the peace and stability of creation are, it seems, not themselves eternal. And John also, interestingly, presents a positive role for creation here. As a a counterpart to his negative vision of the destruction of the ecologically destructive empire, John recalls God's promise to Noah. You know, the story of Noah and the animals in the ark and the rainbow at the end. And John recalls God's promise to Noah that he will remain faithful to creation, that never again will God destroy all things. And we get a rainbow described in John's description of the throne of God in heaven. And the earth itself is seen within the book to have an active part to play in rescuing humanity from the attack of the satanic beast. So the earth swallows the destructive river sent from the mouth of the dragon. And you get the whole of creation participating in the offering of worship to the one seated on the divine throne. So the four living creatures before the heavenly throne depict the whole created order offering a united song of worship before the, God, before the throne of God. So we've got humanity worshipping, But John also shows the worship of the wild creatures, symbolized by a lion, the domesticated animals, symbolized by a cow, the birds of the air, symbolized by an eagle. And so you've got the four living creatures with the face of a human, a lion, a cow, and an eagle, joining their voices together to worship God. This is humanity as just one part of the created order, all focused on God. Just as a, an aside here, because I get geeky about these things, the association of these four creatures with the authors of the four Gospels. You may have come across this uh, when we were in Lille uh, last, last weekend. It was lovely. We had a nice holiday. Thank you. Uh, we went into a church, and they had a big pulpit, so a big old-fashioned high thing, and on the pulpit rail going up were depictions of the four living creatures. And it's quite clear, you, know, you ascend into the pulpit to preach the Gospel, and these are the four Gospel writers. Well, yes, okay, that's the thing within the Christian tradition. I'm just gonna put it out there that it simply can't have been in John's mind when he wrote Revelation, because if Revelation's written in about 71, at least two of the Gospels hadn't even been written by that point. So whilst in the Christian tradition, these four become the four Gospel writers, that's not what John's doing with them. This is the created order joining with humanity to worship God. Anyway, back to the four living creatures. It is significant that only one of them has a human face, indicating that the worship offered by those on the earth, by humans, is only one facet of the totality of worship that the whole of creation offers to God. And through these various images, which, as always in the book of Revelation, kind of pile one upon another, fast and furious and confusingly, images of destruction interspersed with images of hope, images of judgment sitting alongside images of mercy, creation is seen as having a hopeful rather than hopeless future. Rather than facing eventual environmental destruction at the hands of human imperial exploitation, creation, rather, is seen as having an active role in drawing all things towards unity with the creator and in destroying those who destroy the earth. I think we're not so far here from the language of Mother Earth that we had in our first hymn. The Greek myth of Gaia, the primal Earth goddess, would have been known to John. And of course this gave its name to the Gaia hypothesis, which suggests that all things, all living things and the planet they live on are inextricably linked, working together for the greater good of all things. And if humanity gets too destructive, Earth will rein humanity back in. And that will be very bloody. But it is human the earth restoring its balance. And maybe, I think, says John, that might not be the worst thing that can happen in the long run. Maybe that's God's judgment on evil. In John's thinking in Revelation, the violence which the environment endures at the hands of humanity points the way to a new future, beyond slavery to the forces of empire. Once released from the tyranny of the satanic powers which oppress and destroy, creation can be freed to fulfill its function as the context for a renewed relationship between humanity and God. So John has this image of a new heaven and a new earth, representing his vision of what it means for humanity to repent of their obsession with empire, Learning to live in a new relationship with both creation and creator. This is not just some future hope. This is what we can have now if we repent. The transition to the new heaven and the new earth you see does not involve the destruction totally of the existing created order before recreation can occur. Those theologies that say the earth can just go to hell because Jesus is going to return and give us a new one don't work in this scheme. This is the earth and it needs to be renewed today and tomorrow and into eternity. And for its renewal to occur, repentance must happen. The new creation is brought into being as the oppressive powers of the satanic empire are destroyed. So the picture which John draws of the new earth is one which encompasses redeemed aspects of the present earth. The vision of a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem at their centre is primarily a vision for the here and now of John's audience, be it 1st century or 21st century, because it presents a challenge that we, are to be those who give testimony to the inbreaking kingdom of God. We are to be those who live now as citizens of New Jerusalem, no longer as citizens of Babylon. We are to be those who lead the way for the world in repenting of the obsession the world has with destructive empire. The renewal of the created order is not something to be anticipated at some decisive point in the future as the divine answer to all of the problems empire has wrought. Rather, it is found in the present as the idolatrous claims of the satanic empire are exposed, opposed, and rejected. And as humanity responds to the prophetic witness to an alternative way of living than just slavish devotion to the beast. Well, we're nearly done. But there is a prophetic call That we need to hear. By this reading of the book of Revelation, the hope for creation under empire lies in John's prophetic challenge to the destructive ideology of empire. This is uh, a wonderful picture. You may recognize in its backgrounds the famous painting of the Tower of Babel by Peter Bruegel the Elder. where Babel is presented as a kind of Colosseum-like structure. And what Julie Holcomb has done is reimagined Babel, Babylon, Empire as symbols of modern capitalism. And it is only once the idolatrous claims of Babel, Babylon, the Empire are rejected that a new relationship between humanity and creation becomes possible. Within John's scheme, when God is named as Lord of creation, then the idolatrous powers of empire are challenged. We're back here, you see, to the political overtones of worship. As we name Jesus as Lord, what are we, 60, 70 of us this morning gathered here in Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, when we name Jesus as Lord that means that nothing else is Lord and that Babylon is challenged. And that takes us into the politics of transforming the world in the name of Christ. Worship in Revelation is not about making God feel good about himself. You know, I love you, Jesus, aren't you great? It's not that at all. It's about saying Jesus is Lord and therefore nothing else is. Jesus is Lord of creation and when he is named as such, all the idolatrous imperial aspirations of humanity are challenged and the way begins to be opened for humanity, God and creation to recover that which was lost at Eden. The new song, which only the 144,000 can sing that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, becomes a song of prophetic challenge. With those who recognize the lordship of the one on the throne in heaven, challenging the nations of the earth in their time to join them in resisting the seductive yet destructive calls of the satanic empire. The sequences of warning judgments, calling the nations to repentance of their imperial idolatry, pave the way for the ultimate judgment on those satanic systems which oppress and destroy. So within John's symbolic world, creation is, at the end, finally and fully freed from satanic oppression. The forces of the empire are destroyed at the great battle of Armageddon. They go into the lake of fire before the throne and they don't come back out again. And although John's own antidote to imperial idolatry involves acknowledging the divine figure on the heavenly throne, I think his work makes a powerful environmental critique of empire available to a wider humanity beyond the church. Although John was writing to those in the Christian congregations of first century Asia Minor, his prophetic call to the church, to enact a faithful witness to a non-exploitative view of humanity in the earth, retains a clear challenge for the contemporary world. John's call to come out of Babylon coupled with his presentation of empire as a destructive and ultimately self-destructive system, I think presents a persistent challenge to all of us who want to try and combine a life of enjoyment under empire with a concern for environmental justice. That tension is highlighted for us. Well, Bloomsbury is already committed to the task of working out how to exist as a more environmentally friendly community And yes, I know, us making changes in our lifestyles are not ultimately going to solve the world's problems. But John knows that too. But when we do it symbolically together, we are enacting a prophetic witness to the nations and issuing wider than ourselves the call to repent. I am very pleased, and we've seen this before here, but I'm just going to highlight it again, that Bloomsbury has the bronze eco-church standard. We were awarded this last year, but there is much more we can still do. And I hope in the next couple of years we will begin to, we will continue exploring this journey of what it means for us as we go for silver and maybe gold. and, And we make public our commitment to a theology of living at peace with God's creation. Harnessing the strengths of empire in the search for solutions to pressing environmental concerns may or may not solve our imminent problems. There is some hopeful science out there. We might yet, by brilliance and the application of will, somehow find our way through the current environmental crisis. But John's insight is that in the long term, those who dance with empire, will still end up embracing Babylon. As we bring our prayers of intercession, there is a short response that I'd like us to use as we go through. When I say, oh God, hear us, we pray. You say, give us your love for the whole of creation. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Creator God, we give thanks for this wonderful earth, which we share with the whole community of life. We pray for the awareness that we cannot sustain current aspirations of infinite economic gain on a finite planet. Help us to live in such a way that we respect all life, accepting that we must reduce our demands in order to allow other forms of life to continue and flourish. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. In our brokenness, we disturb Earth's capacity to hold us. So we have climate uncertainty and global injustice. Help us to make a difference today for life tomorrow. We pray for all those affected by typhoon lakima, which has left 28 people dead and a million evacuated in China. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Creator God, we pray for our brothers and sisters of the earth, animals, birds, fish, plants, and insects. May their humility and simplicity inspire us to live according to your will. O oh God hear us we pray give us your love for the whole of creation spirit of god inspire our church to develop partnerships of action with others to address the pressing issues of our planet we pray particularly for our partnership with arosha and eco church and we pray also for visionaries artists and writers that through their work we may see creation afresh. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Creator Spirit, we pray that the church will re-engage with your creation and reaffirm our biblical, theological and spiritual traditions. Lead us to transform our lives and the church to reflect your glory in creation. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Spirit of God, you establish the dance of creation. Bring life out of death and order out of chaos. Call us to radical action to care about the whole created world and to share resources more equitably with all life. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Creator God, we confess the way we are using fossil fuels and other destructive forms of energy today is destroying the forests, changing the climate, the seas, the soils, the biodiversity and the balance of life on our fragile planet, dispossessing the poor and future generations. Help us to choose life for all. And to choose life for all that is at risk. For neighbours near and far and for those that come after us. Give us the knowledge to learn what we do not know, but long to understand, that we may honour and nurture all that makes us one in you. O God, hear us, we pray. Give us your love for the whole of creation. Amen.